back, friends. This is Shipping Shakespeare, your semi-regular podcast for all the Shakespeare ships that you could want to build, sink, or row away in. The latter being the most operative in this play. I'm Julia. And I'm Liz. We are continuing our conversation of The Merchant of Venice, aka our least favorite play. At least this play has dramatic structure, but that's the only good thing I'm going to say about it. That's the only good thing you can say about it. As per usual, we're going to talk about our problematic faves, our ships that we badly need to sink. All of them! I think we're going to light them on fire first. Our beloved hate sex couple of the month, and who our cinnamon roll of the play is. Liz is going to give us a summary of the play, and then I'm going to talk about the key ideas. Well-born, pretty idiot Bassanio has wasted all his money on reckless living. He plans to fix his fortunes by marrying wealthy the heiress Portia of Belmont. Unluckily, this requires him to ask his very devoted friend, Antonio, for a loan so he can look like a decent suitor. Unluckiest of all, Antonio has no ready capital and gets his own loan from Shylock, a Jewish moneylender, with the collateral listed jokingly as a pound of Antonio's flesh. All of the Christian characters, by the way, are hella fucking racist, often right to Shylock's face. There is no way this could possibly backfire! While Bassanio ditches Antonio and successfully woos Portia, his trash friend Lorenzo elopes with Shylock daughter Jessica and a metric ton of Shylock's money. Heartbroken by his daughter's betrayal and embittered by the undisguised hatred of literally everyone in this play, Shylock vows revenge. When Antonio loses all his ships at sea, Shylock demands the pound of his flesh. Bassanio races back to Venice because he cares way less about his new wife than about his boyfriend. Because this is Shakespeare, Portia and her maid Nerissa cross-dress as lawyers and also go to Venice, where Portia takes on Antonio's case. When Shylock refuses mercy in favor of justice, Portia saves Antonio's life via a loophole about blood and unleashes his total merciless hell on Shylock, getting the court to strip him of all his goods and force him to convert to Christianity. We are supposed to cheer. Then there's some shenanigans with the wedding rings of Portia and Bassanio and Nerissa and Graziano, the most racist person in the whole play, which really only drives home that these are all worthless garbage people. That was excellent. (laughs) I had feelings. Again, I think we're keeping them contained really well. In terms of key ideas, like many of Shakespeare's comedies, there is a lot more going on than romantic hijinks. Unfortunately, most of what's interesting about the play to us is vastly overshadowed by the anti-Semitic and racist wank. As Liz discussed in detail last time, major themes in the play include justice versus mercy, the nature of friendship, the nature of family, including good and bad families, including abusive relationships. There are also brilliant ladies wearing pants, music, and order expressed through music, class distinctions, particularly the noble class versus the working middle class, aka the merchant class, as well as the nature of and proper use of wealth. There's a distinct contrast between the almost fairy tale like setting of Belmont away from the practical concerns of Venice. Bassanio is praised not for being a man of the world, but for being generous beyond his means. It's worth noting, however, that his freedom with his money is gets him and Antonio into all their trouble in the first place. Of course, money is of no concern to Portia, who offers to pay off three times Antonio's debt like it's nothing. Meanwhile, Shylock is stripped multiple times of his wealth, including by his daughter, who robs him. Again, not that he's a great father, but still. And then again, at the end of the play, by the penalties imposed by Portia and the court. And then to add insult to injury, they turn that into inheritance for Jessica anyway. Like, it's just a mound of bullshit. Then there's a sense that more immediate financial concerns should be beneath courtly people like Bassanio and Portia, but it's pretty easy for them to say. All of this is complicated by the fact that usually your money lending is a major plot point in the play. Money lending fell to non-Christians in Christian societies during Shakespeare's time because of the prohibitions against it by the church, and it was a means to further marginalize already marginalized communities, which is extremely clear here. So in other words, it gave people another excuse to be shitty I guess in summary, once again, fuck this play. 
That is the overarching theme of these episodes. As much as I would love to talk about the language or friendship or family or any of the cool stuff that could be going on, it's just really too racist for that. It would be doing a disservice to it to give it that much credit. Yeah, I'm not really gonna fight you on that one. This is a trash fire. It's funny how, like, hard in agreement we are. I would go to bat for it more if there were characters in this play who I could actually get behind 100%. There are not. Even if there was some ambiguity about any of it, if there were doubts expressed, if Antonio had a moment, like one moment, where he saw Shylock's humanity, that would change this play for me. But it doesn't happen. He's confronted with Shylock's humanity in the very first scene they have together. Shylock says, you treat me like a fucking animal, and now you want money from me? And what am I supposed to say? Literally spit on me. Yeah, and Antonio's like, I'm gonna do it again, bitch! I have no regrets. YOLO! Well, that's the usual thing. It allows people to dehumanize and take advantage of. We need this done, but we can't do it. Yeah, so you're gonna do it, and we're gonna use it as an excuse to hate you more. Aren't you so happy to be living in our society? Yeah, also you're welcome that we, you know, for our business. Like, what the hell? Right, like, you should be grateful that we let you live here. Maybe you notice that we find a lot of this problematic. The problem in this section is not the problematic, it is the fave. But it's okay, because we don't like any of these, so we're going to tear them new ones. Even our OTPs are just not worth it. You can't not see it with some of these, but I don't want these people to go off into the sunset and be happy together. I want them to get plague and die. My ideal ending is the proper Antonio, my cinnamon roll from Twelfth Night, shows up and just bombs the fuck out of this. Please! Orsino, give him your fleet with cannons and shit. Illyria, we need you. (laughs) This is important. Come and save us. Shakespeare is getting away with something pretty dirty by putting all of his English anti-Semitism onto people in another country, which is not to say the Italians were not extremely anti-Semitic because they hella were, but this is a displacement that lets the English get away with saying whatever they want about people that they had already kicked out of their country centuries beforehand. There are so many reasons already to hate the fuck out of Edward I. The expulsion of the Jews is a drop in a very large bucket. Like, talk to the Welsh. I am also part Welsh, guys. I really hate Edward I. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's worth remembering also that Jews were still not technically allowed in England. Yeah, you're picking on people that aren't even (laughs) allowed to be there. Just obnoxious. What we're seeing here is the flourishing and somewhat subverting of a stereotype that had never really been countered by widespread awareness of this group of people. This is what happens when you don't check your fucking privilege, guys. You get shit like the Merchant of Venice. Oh, we're subverting the trope, but not really. Do better, Shakespeare. I know you can. We have a perfect example of that in Othello, actually. So he could have, he just didn't. Othello is allowed to be a hero, is conceived of as a hero. Shylock is given enough humanity to make him sympathetic, but not enough to make him anything less than a villain in terms of dramatic structure. Mostly what it does is make it like just worth reading, because if he was just a caricature, I wouldn't bother with this play at all. Like I would just take it off our list if he didn't have that speech. God, that speech is carrying so much weight in this play. All the weight? Yeah, that speech is the linchpin of this play. Otherwise, there would be no point in studying this play for anyone. Not even just like silly podcast reasons, but there'd be no reason to read it at all. We talk about this and not the Jew of Malta. Oh, God. Marlo, why? 
Let's talk about Bessonio. Yeah. All right. So we kind of hit some of the highlights last time. They're basically canon. Again, I'll fight anyone who says they're not. There are huge inequalities in this relationship because one of them is a massive fuckboy. That's why. And the other one is a love martyr. And not a pirate. So he just loses automatically. Seriously. Just be a pirate if you're going to be a gay Antonio in Shakespeare. Always choose to be a pirate. Honestly. Ugh. Being a merchant is like the Diet Coke version of being a pirate. These are not people able to have a healthy relationship with each other right now. Clearly what they have is very deeply felt. I don't think that's up for debate at all. Pretty clear in that court scene. (laughs) Yeah, but again, Bassanio is a classic user, all take and no give, and literally asks Antonio to put his body in hazard so Bassanio can marry some rich chick. Yeah. There's also some issues that come up with the age difference, I think, as you mentioned in the last episode. Right. And this isn't us like shitting on autumn, summer, winter, summer, however you phrase that relationships, because age differences are fine. That's not the deal here. The question is ultimately one of grooming. Yeah. It ties in part into just how big that age difference is, which obviously varies from production to production, but more pertinently, it ties into the question of emotional dependence in this relationship. Antonio is very obviously using Bassanio's guilt against him when he asks him to come to the trial. Even though Bassanio is so clearly using Antonio, Antonio is a manipulator. You see that in a lot of his rhetoric and the way that he talks to Bassanio and the letter he writes him. Oh, but if you don't want to come you don't have to, which is like such an Italian slash Jewish mother thing to say. Are they more alike than they think? (laughs) We'll get there. Shortly, in fact. But yeah, Bassanio has a thing for being manipulated, and I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that that thing could have been fostered and nurtured by Antonio needing Bassanio to be emotionally dependent on him. Antonio is also surrounded by all these young people, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you could have older friends and younger friends, like, that's not the point. But they clearly serve a particular function for him. That function is sexy times. Yeah. But, you know, also to, like, just make him feel good about himself. I mean, he has a lot of hangers on, even though these kids are of the social class above his. They're his entry into a world that he isn't actually, like, that able to traverse. And granted, it's Venice, so, like, you have a really strong merchant class. Those divisions aren't as strong as they actually would have been in England but they still exist and there's still a clear difference. Antonio never would have been allowed to Belmont, for example, if he were not Bassanio's boyfriend that they just rescued. Even in the most obvious ship in this play that has the most attention devoted to making you believe in it, there's so many issues. It's not the most problematic fave we've ever had because Hamphelia will always be there. I'm so sorry. This play makes me a lot angrier than Hamlet if you haven't noticed. Well, that's because Hamlet is good. True. Even though Hamlet's a fuckboy. The Shakespearean fuckboy club would just obviously be massive. Oh, God. Sexy Villains Club is obviously an elite group. The only real rival in terms of size to the Shakespearean fuckboys club is the badass ladies getting shit done club. There's a cross-dressing division and a non-cross-dressing division. (laughs) Alpha beta boys pants and alpha beta skirts. Love it. But anyway, we're not talking about the fun girls. We're talking about this shit. It's a bummer. Even in Extremis, when Bassanio is back in Venice for the trial, swearing up and down that he would let everyone he loves die in order to save Antonio, it seems a little empty. Like if Portia turned around and was like, hey, by the way, 
I am your wife and I'm leaving you now. I don't think he believes it's really possible. I don't think he thinks bad things are going to happen to them in general because like, that's privilege. That's why he's so shocked when this does happen. This is the first bad thing that's ever really happened to him that he hasn't been able to charm or fuck his way out of. When he says, the Jew shall have my flesh, blood, bones, and all, ere thou lose them for me one drop. If Shylock turned around and was like, okay, sure, let's have yours instead. He'd be like, whoa, wait, no, really? Did I say that? Who said that? It's not in writing. No one shook hands. Love you. Bye. He's not risking anything at any point in this play. He doesn't risk himself to win Portia. He's not risking his own flesh for the money. He doesn't really risk himself for Antonio. Like, it's all rhetoric. Bassanio is an empty, empty person. But they're all empty. His feelings are real. But yes, you're absolutely right. He does not expect to have to put his money where his mouth is. I mean, he'll put his mouth in other places. All the other places. Oh my god. They had some amazing glad-to-be-alive sex after the trial. Oh, for sure. There's that interlude before he's back at Belmont. He's not even wearing Portia's ring. And Portia gets back there first. Yeah, no, she knows exactly what they were doing. Her knowledge of his relationship with Antonio and her acceptance of it is one of the more interesting parts about their relationship. And also one of the ripest veins of interpretation that can be mined for this play. You could play her very resentfully. I don't think that's inherent to the text, but, you know. It's clearly the primary ship of this play, but it's not without sin. No, no, no. Much nicer ships you could ride off into the horizon on. Paracagon. Yes, even in this play, but like in general, I mean. This is the wrong Antonio. Be a pirate. Just gonna keep banging on that drum just to give myself a little bit of joy. We need it. The other thing that qualifies as enough of a fave for us to talk about it in this section is obviously Parissa. I think you see some of the same problems you see with Bessonium to a far lesser extent, obviously, but there's also very little at risk in their relationship. Which makes a marked difference from Bessonio, where ultimately everything is at risk. Bessonio's promises are empty, but that doesn't make the situation less real. With Portia and Arissa, they're not really tested in any way at all. But you do get the sense that they would come through for each other if they had to in a way that Bassanio does not for Antonio. That's true. Although I still think that Nerissa is more willing to come through for Portia than the reverse. I would absolutely agree. And I think Portia expects that. I don't think Portia ever expects to have to come through for Nerissa in the ways that Nerissa is required to come through for Portia. Yeah, not at all. And I don't think Portia's ever heard the word no either. Like you said, if Olivia and Rosalind had a child, it would be Portia. A racist child. And lived on a magical island off of Venice. Belmont's such a ridiculous place, you guys. So much music. It makes for lovely staging, don't get me wrong. You can say that for it. Um... Moving right along. Yep. But yeah, so there are always inequalities when you have a lady-in-waiting type and a noblewoman set up. So I think that's partly what's at work, but it's also just that, like, Portia's really fucking selfish. It's not that I question the strength of their attachment to each other, which I think is real. For sure. But the inequality of this relationship is what makes it problematic, aside from the fact that they're both raging anti-Semites. That's what makes everyone in this play a problem. Blanket statement. Everyone in this play sucks. Correct. Can't say it enough. Also, when they cross-dress, Portia says that she's going to be the more attractive guy. And that's just hurtful. Like, why would you say that? Either to your friend or your lady lover. Like, that's rude. It's Portia. She's rude. You just want to light this whole harbor on fire. (laughs) Call it a day. Where is some goddamn Greek fire when you need it? Or a kraken? There's got to be one in the Mediterranean. 
drag all of these ships down to Davy Jones's locker and save us all. But even in this garbage heap of a play, there is one ship that I desperately need to sink. And another one I would like to sink, so we're going to do both of them. Oh my god, you guys, Graziano is the worst. He is the actual worst in a play full of horrible, horrible people. He is the most racist, he is the most careless, he talks the most, so you just get even more of his unbearable opinions. And somehow, he winds up with the only character apart from Morocco and Aragon that I actually genuinely like. In a nutshell, yeah, that is the problem. In a play that does not have a lot of inhibition in general, he's still beaded. Like, he is all of the worst impulses expressed, even though like no one's holding back. When Bassanio tells you to dial it back, you know you're going too far. Honestly. <laughs> what the fuck is your deal, Graziano? And how on earth did you get Nerissa to agree to marry you? Like, how big is your dick? How hot are you exactly? <laughs> Who would you have to cast to make that worthwhile? The dude better be fucking Adonis come again, hung like a horse. Adonis and Don Juan. And even then, I would want to sink it, because even if he was Adonis Juan, he would still be a shit. I was gonna say Don Adonis, but that's better. I'm here every episode. You are, thank God. No, he's irredeemable. Like, you could point to any scene of his in the play, and he's being a shithead. I want to point to one in particular, the trial scene. Yeah, I thought that was the one you were going to go for. You knew it was coming. Portia does her shtick. At first, she's arguing very pro-Shylock. This is the letter of the law. This is justice. We haven't gotten yet to mercy, which we'll touch on briefly and then forget even exists. Because hypocrisy... Shylock is relieved that someone in this bullshit city is actually, like, listening to him and maybe even agreeing with him. He throws in these interjections. A Daniel, come to judge me. Like, hooray, someone is fucking listening to what I have to say. Then she flips. Lol, loophole abuse, you can't shit any of his blood. If you do, you gon' die. Fucking Graziano throws those exhortations right back in Shylock's teeth. He's just like, oh, thanks for teaching me that term, Jew. This is a shitty scene already. Not that you necessarily want Shylock to win his case, because that's gruesome and terrible, and doesn't do him any good, which might be the most important part. Like, he thinks he wants revenge, and I don't blame him for wanting revenge. I should say that too. But at the end of the day, like, a pound of Antonio's flesh isn't going to make your daughter come back, or bring your wife back from the dead, or make Venice any less shitty. Yeah, no, the tragedy of Shylock is that, surrounded by monsters, he ultimately becomes a monster, just like they are. Absolutely. It's not that you want him to succeed. Portia's loophole is extremely clever, but the play doesn't stop there. It just keeps going. It gets so much worse, and Gradiano is this fucked up Greek chorus in the middle of it. Grinding him further under his heel, which, like, was he not already there? I don't know how Shakespeare wants us to read in there. I think he wants it to be funny, but it's really, really not. Because it takes the sense of relief that you feel and it completely perverts it. You can't be happy that Antonio is going to live because everything else is just that much more shitty and this poor man is being abused and abused again and then Portia doesn't, as you pointed out, show any mercy either. It just keeps getting worse and worse. And again, Gradiano is the voice of all of that in the worst possible way because he's the worst. And for all of the reasons that we have discussed in this episode and in the last one, Nerissa deserves better. That's our comment. 
Lynn refrain, right? Like, hashtag she deserves better. But she does. Like we've said, she is also anti-Semitic. The better she deserves is Portia. Right. She doesn't deserve Romeo, all right? Most people don't. Romeo, you precious, beautiful idiot. We'll get there. We love Romeo, by the way. We love Romeo and Juliet. When we do that play, you're going to be amazed how much you will love it after we talk about it. But we are not talking about that play right now. (laughs) We got to talk about the trash. (laughs) There is no conceivable reality in which someone like Nerissa, who is smart and funny and good at cross-dressing and loyal, would ever deserve to end up with a racist garbage heap like Graziano. It's really hard to take the racism and the anti-Semitism out of the play. But even if you did, he's still a shitty person. Like, he's not a good friend. He doesn't help anyone in the play. He just slouches into this marriage by being present. Hey, girl, your girlfriend's getting married. How about you and me? And then we can all hang out. Naked. Yeah, foursomes abound, I am sure. Foursomes at Belmont was the initial title of this episode. I can't even get excited about that. If you're going to talk about foursomes, the Great Illyrian one is just... Oh, there's not even any contest. It is the Alps above this shitty play. This play is at the bottom of the Venetian canals. And it's sinking. Nerissa deserves better, for sure. I'm going to segue into our next one and say that Portia also deserves better, even though she is problematic. I mean, she's worse than Nerissa. Like, she is a worse human being. The hierarchy's pretty clear. It goes Morocco and Aragon. Precious babies. I'm going to say Jessica. I'm going to go with you on that one, yeah. Tubal, and then like everybody else. But, you know, Nerissa is like slightly at the top of the garbage heap. Not entirely sure where I'd rank Nerissa in relation to Shylock, who also deserves better. He does. Shylock, I take out of the hierarchy and hopefully put him off to the side where he can get the help he needs. Oh, bless. You're so good. That's what I want for Shylock. But yeah, Nerissa above the rest of the Venetians, for sure. But Portia... Portia deserves better than the fuckboy she gets saddled with. I mean, she agrees to it, and I'm always, even in this play, for the idea that you should be with someone who makes you happy. But I think it's pretty clear that in the long run, that is not what's going to happen. Again, one of the other reasons that I love the 04 movie version is that the casting of Joseph Fiennes as Bassanio is inspired. He is so pretty, and he plays useless so well. I can absolutely see how you could fall in instant lust with him and come to regret it later. Yeah, because in five years, this relationship is going to be nothing. Maybe not even five years. Jessica and Lorenzo go down the tubes immediately, which is another ship we could sink, incidentally. She's too smart for him. She's going to get get bored with him. He's going to waste all of her money unless she locks it the fuck away. I think she knows that, though. Actually, to give her credit, I think she is going to manage this relationship because she's already shown her capacity to do so. It's just going to be loveless. I keep going back to the 04 movie. For me, it's the best production of this play that I've ever seen in terms of what they do with the relationships in this play. That ending scene makes abundantly clear that what Bassanio really wants is a partner who can do both. Right. When Portia reveals that she's not just this blushing virginal innocent, but is a manipulator beyond even Antonio's skill level and can also do the dude thing and dominate him in a way he really hasn't been, he gets so hot for her. And poor Antonio is just like left staring out at the sunrise like, well, that was a nice run, I guess. Just let Solanio love you. 
Dude, what do you have to lose? Nothing. You don't have anything. Although some of his ships come back at the end. Out of nowhere. That's all he has, though. Portia would be an endlessly challenging, arousing source of life for Bassanio, but she deserves better than to be someone else's life. Yeah, and again, he's pretty empty. So unless he gains some texture, I don't see a lot in it. She deserves to be challenged. By someone like Nerissa. Yeah, I'm picturing her and Rosalind, but I think they would just tear each other to pieces, to be honest. Rosalind would take one look at the trash fire that is Portia and just be like, like, yeah, you're hot, but back home, I have a dude who listens to me and respects me and writes me adorable, terrible poetry. Not to mention my hot cousin. Bye-bye. Don't need you. Don't want you. I don't think I want to ship them. I think I want them to fight to the death. And by that, I mean for Rosalind to destroy Portia. Portia would be all smug and be like, I got this. And Rosalind is like, I am improvising off the top of my head, but oh, look, I won. And then Viola's like off on the sidelines eating popcorn. Like, <laughs> I'm done with this. These days are beyond me. The whole like Illyrian set is just over there having a picnic. Like, I don't know why you guys are trying so hard. Oh, and this can be like a bonding exercise for Celia and Orlando. Both just cheering for Rosalind and be like, I like you. I like you too. We can make peace. Oh, did we just fix as you like it? (gasps) We did. And we did it by killing Portia. Everyone wins. Except for the people in Merchant of Venice. Who don't deserve to win because they're terrible. Total chaos. We can also sink Lorenzo Jessica. I mean, it's already sunk itself. (laughs) This is like Caesar and Brutus. They did that themselves. Unfortunately, nothing as beautiful comes out of it. God, no. We can't always be so lucky. This marriage is based on momentary fancy and adrenaline. There's nothing else to it, as is made abundantly clear by their scene at the end. Yeah, they're completely out of sync. Even their wooing scene isn't at all compelling. Like, there's very little poetry in it. The one and only boring cross-dressing scene in all of Shakespeare. Yeah, she's like, oh, go throw on some pants. Why? I guess so she can blend it. I don't know. It's trash. And then he's like, oh, yeah, she seems smart and pretty. I'm going to marry her. Like, that's all there is to it. It's got nothing to do with this casket of ducats she just lobbed into my lap. Certainly not. I think it goes without saying that Jessica deserves better. She deserves better than anyone else in the play. She's put in a situation where she's required to hate who she is to move on with her life. She's such an underused tragic character. Aside from the fact that her dad clearly does love her very much, he doesn't show it well at all. Oh no, it's an oppressive, abusive relationship. I would argue even by the standards of the day. He's clearly meant to be over-the-top protective. And, like, I get why when you've got all these hot, lecherous Christians running around. Fucking Gentiles. Keep your bacon-eating hands off my daughter. But he so clearly feels to realize that that is exactly how you sent her into Lorenzo's arms in the first place. And it's just so sad that he doesn't trust her, and therefore she doesn't trust him, and they just spiral down this path of destruction together. Neither of them ever get to express what they mean to one another. That division is fairly cemented at the end of the play. Like, even though she converts, I would argue it's worse what happens with the solution that Portia presents, with the inheritance. Just seems like the final break between them. And she's never seen as anything but Jewish. It's very clear that all of Lorenzo's circle is always going to consider her the Jewess. This is partly why we're talking about racism and anti-Semitism, right, in the same breath. It's not just about your faith. Even if you were willing to switch, she doesn't really have a choice any more than her father does. If she wants to get out from under his thumb, the price for that is her entire identity. Right. This is a systemic issue. But it doesn't matter that she converts, because there are other attachments to that identity that she can't just shake off. Whether or not she still identifies that way, no one else is ever going to identify her as anything 
else. I've never known quite what to make of the turquoise ring sitch, because it seems like an incredibly thoughtless and callous thing to do. Another reason why I love the O4 movie is that the final shot, she looks out with this heartbreak on her face, twisting the turquoise ring on her finger that she did not, in fact, give away. Oh, that's lovely. It's so sad. Here she is, shackled to her past in ways that she doesn't want to let go of and shouldn't have to, but will also clearly never be able to move beyond. She won't be allowed to as much as she tries. And Lorenzo is going to be no help to her because he's not going to understand that this shit is not over for her, ever. I hope she ditches him at the first opportunity. If she has to murder him, so be it. That's fine. Yeah, hands up if you're going to cry for Lorenzo. Oh, look at my hands on my desk right now. But to go back to the ring, one read of it is that it's a really crass thing to do to trade away her mother's ring. The other thing I see, if there's such a disconnect between her and Shylock, there is a possibility that she does not fully understand the significance of anything that she's taken. To her, it's just shiny, meaningless stuff. She gets to buy her way into Venetian society as much as she can and finally gets to enjoy herself. So under that possibility, I can fully see her trading the ring for a monkey because the ring doesn't necessarily mean anything to her because her father hasn't told her. He's not the most sharing of guys. That makes a horribly tragic amount of sense. Everything else we see about Jessica is like a fairly serious character. Granted, she's going out and having fun, but that doesn't last very long. And we get the accounts of her fun having from Tubal, who clearly wants to inflame Shylock against Antonio. And there's the inherent sexism of that, too, right? I think as much as I'm glad that Shylock has a friend, they're of their place and their time, which means they're going to see her a particular way, and she's lost to them in many respects think about Fiddler on the Roof here, guys. Think about Chava marrying Fiedka and then multiply that by the Renaissance. <laughs> and she knows that, and Shylock knows that, and I think Lorenzo does not. I don't think he knows exactly what that would mean for her. If he knows, he doesn't care. He doesn't have to. But yeah, Jessica deserves better. All the women in this play deserve better, just to varying degrees. It's not like the women are great, it's just that the men are so much worse. Oh God, let's talk about something fun. Like hate sex? Like hate sex! Yay, hate sex! We haven't talked about this at all, and I'm sure you've been wondering why, and it's because we've been saving it. This is maybe the quintessential hate sex couple in all of Shakespeare. There are other great candidates, don't get me wrong, and we've talked about some of them and made up a few. But this one, it's the hate sex by which you judge all other hate sex. And Tylock. Who hates each other more than Antonio and Shylock, I ask you? Literally nobody! <laughs> no one. Their scene together is insane. And unlike some other hate sex couples that we've featured, they have more than one scene together. You get to see the development of this hatred. And contempt. Oh, it's so juicy. Honestly, my favorite scene with the two of them is the second one, when Shylock has him arrested and Antonio is trying to play all innocent. Oh, do what you gotta do, abide by the law, and Shylock is just like, I'm gonna kill you dead in front of your whole fucking city, and I'm gonna like it. Gonna be the best day my whole life. Antonio's just like, can you let me speak? And Shylock says, I'll have my bond. I will not hear thee speak. I'll have my bond and therefore speak no more. Mic drop, exit. There's nothing you can say at this point to change my mind. And Antonio's like, is there anything I could do? Because there's a lot I'm willing to do. Ask Bassanio. I have references. <laughs> They're good. And poor Solanio is just like, up over here. You guys, this relationship is so brutal. This isn't fun hate sex. No, this is like vicious teeth and nails struggling for dominance, which is just kind of sometimes really hot. 
I mean, arguably. Shylock has so much to prove, so much at stake here. One way or another, he has to demonstrate that he's human. Yeah, for sure. But he could also do it by fucking the shit out of Antonio. (laughs) Antonio would not be able to deny his humanity after that. Lest you think that Shylock is doing all the work here, Antonio hates his guts as much, if not more. It's abundantly clear in that first scene between the two of them. Shylock is just like, please stop spitting on me if you want shit. No, I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to borrow money from you. So Shylock has every reason to hate Antonio. Antonio hates him back. It's not subtle. It's funny, too, because Antonio is doing some like alpha male posturing to Bassanio in that scene. Yes. It's fine. I'll seal to this bond. I'm going to get this back three times over, like a month before it's due. I'm not worried. I'm butch. It's a lie. It is not true. You are weak as shit, Antonio. Which he knows. He's well aware. It's all posturing. It's all extremely arrogant because he has the dominant society on his side when it comes to Shylock, which is why he gets to treat him the way that he does, which is also why Shylock responds the way that he does. Shylock's hatred for Antonio is way more than an individual antipathy. It's Shylock's hatred for all of Venice. Yeah, Antonio becomes the focus of all the abuse that Shylock has received over the course of his life. Antonio committed a healthy portion of that abuse, but not all of it. Shylock needs someone to hate at this point. You get to localize your griefs in this one person, but they are of a system and a society that is oppressing you. Which also might be part of the appeal for Antonio in that he finally gets to Dom for once. He thinks he does, but that's not how it works out at all. Oh no, he'd go into it being like, the reins are in my hands now, and Shylock is like, say what, bitch? I have a lifetime of racism and oppression, and I'm going to take it out on you. Who's more like Venice than Antonio? Literally no one. He's the merchant of. Singular. Oh man, they would tear each other to pieces, and it would be really hot. They would definitely ruin each other. This is a little too intense, say it sex for me, I'll admit. I'm not going to be ride or die for this one. Like I would be for Orsino Antonio. (laughs) Different Antonio. Better Antonio. Best Antonio. Be a pirate. (laughs) But like, I kind of want this to happen so that there's a slightly healthier way for Shylock to get his feelings out. I mean, I'm definitely for that. Although again, I think maybe like an emotional support group or something (laughs) would do more. Yes, but Shylock is also beyond gentler measures. Oh, probably. Yeah, he definitely needs to work out his frustrations. I'm not denying that this is the hate-sex pairing. It's just so hardcore, and it's this play, so I'm kind of like, yeah, but I don't know if I would read fic for it, really, to be honest. The prettier fic would obviously be Bassonio. Although, if anyone wants to write some Rockagon or some Solanio and Antonio, like both of those things would make me really happy. Yes, please do that. We need that in the world. Poke around AO3 later and see what turns up for this. Maybe we could affect real change. Or no one could just read Merchant and we could all talk about happier, better plays. Let's wrap this up with our pastry of choice. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, like, it's clear. We don't even like anyone else in this play. It's obviously Maracagon. The two of them together. You know, like, those cinnamon rolls, they kind of get stuck together in the oven. It's like that. They're like a little cinnamon roll twin thing. Covered in icing. Happy together. Away from Portia. Run, precious babies, run. Yeah, they don't know what they've survived. I think word of this shenanigan gets back to them, and they're like, Woo! High five, bro! 
dodge some bullets. Not bullets in this case, but trebuchets. Accurate. It's a stretch, but that's this play. Find your fucking happiness where you can here. And if you're Solanio, just wait around until it notices you. Maybe take matters into your own hands a little bit. He almost died. When he gets back from Belmont, kiss the hell out of him, and then just go off and be racist together. Because no one learned any lessons in this play, and it's bullshit. <sighs> We're done! We did it! Although, again, if pirates showed up and bombed the city, I'd be fine with it. Everyone in this play needs to die in a fire. Or the plague. That's it. The Illyrian fleet comes, and there's a plague rat on board. Oh, I like it. So, destroy the city, and then a plague. The plague rat gets off the ship before it does any damage to our Illyrian babies. Oh, naturally. Because they're beautiful and healthy. Anyway, that's the route we can go if we don't want to do the Portia-Rosalind cage match. Honestly, I think that might be my preference. And in conclusion, guys, always be a gay pirate. Always be a gay pirate. Fuck this play. Go read something else. We love you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. This show is produced by us, Julia and Liz, as part of the Adjective Sphinx Network. The music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. You can find links for more info in the show notes. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at Adjective Sphinx or email us at adjectivesphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.